0: Father, we find so much encouragement in you. When our eyes are turned towards your gaze, we find joy. We find satisfaction. We find contentment. Lord, so often our our hearts, the eyes of our mind are pulled away. Things of this world will attract us. And yet they will only disappoint. They will only leave us empty. They will cause us to worship in a false heart at times. They will cause us to lose joy. And so Lord, today we ask that you would again recapture us. Things that we have dragged through the world. Our feet have picked up the dust of godlessness We pray that your word would wash those away and our attention would be focused on you. Cause us to repent when sin has taken a place in our life where it does not deserve to be. We thank you that we can always come to a cross, a reminder that the Lord Jesus hung on it, paid for all of those sins, beat it, and and rose from the dead. These songs we have sung have reminded us of what we believe. May that not be just words that fall from our lips that have nothing to do with our heart. Lord, we pray that you would capture us once again. Father, many are struggling and they are wanting and desiring your help. There are those this week who have gone through seizures, and gone through treatment, who have had a difficult week. And we pray for them, Lord. Strengthen them, even now as many watch from home or their hospital room. Give them courage to trust you. Lord, those of us that are healthy, may we be mindful of them. And may we walk in the light of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And may that be encouragement to those around us who are struggling. We thank you for your creation that models your grace each and every day. The beauty of a sunrise that comes out of the east for us, day in and day out, constantly proclaiming your glory to us. Father, help us not take these things for granted. Thank you for our children that are scattered through our congregation and some in nursery even now or children's church, and we are so grateful for them, Lord. We pray you would capture their hearts, Lord. Give them a love for your word, a love for your son, Open their eyes at an early age to worship you. We pray that parents and grandparents would set examples to love Christ from our hearts. That we would lead many to the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for our missionaries, Lord, who so faithfully serve you in places we cannot go. Their lives are often at risk. Their comforts are often at risk. And so we thank you for them. May you give them boldness today. May the tithes and offerings that we give go to further the gospel both here and abroad, Lord. And may you allow us to partner with you. So Lord, hear us today as we sing, as we preach your word, and we pray that you would pierce our hearts today with truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As you take your Bibles and turn to our text in Mark chapter 7, we begin... Uh, a new chapter in the Bible here It is one that clearly has a little change of thought and Mark is now going to record some of the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ The heart of this chapter is that we deal with an all-knowing Savior An all-knowing, the Lord, all-knowing Lord Jesus Christ he is omniscient in all things He knows all men, the Bible says and yet, we have to deal with our hearts. <laughs> These hearts that struggle with hardness at times. Callousness that comes upon it. And yet, the Bible says in Psalms forty-four, twenty-one: 21, God, listen to this, God knows the secrets of the heart. How does that strike you? Does it strike fear into you? Does it strike awe into you? What what goes through your mind when you hear a great verse like that, that God knows the secrets of our heart? Do you fall before Him and say, Oh God, how could you love someone like me? I, I think probably for many of us that's what comes to mind. The things in our heart are desperately wicked, the Bible says, and, and if it was not for God, there would, we would go with all of the wickedness of the world. We would pursue things unimaginable to our minds at times. If it was not for God who has captured our hearts. It was early on in my ministry that I sat with a man who finally had had it with God. As I... Tried to counsel him over adultery and many other things that he had taken places. Finally, his heart just let go. He could not hide behind his so called Christianity anymore. And he just exploded and said things like, I hate the church. I hate my wife. I hate Christianity. And for years, he had been in church. For years, he had modeled faithfulness on the outside. But in the end, the secrets of of his heart were revealed. And when I study a text like Mark chapter 7, it is a text that's penetrating. You can't hide from our Lord. He knows our thoughts before we think them, before we form them. Psalms 139 says, "He knows when we lay down and when we rise up. We cannot ascend to the heights or the depths without him knowing where we are at." If you love the Lord, these are tremendous comforts to you. If you're a non-repenter, if you don't like dealing with your sin, these are disturbing. And today we will look where Mark records the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ as he's dealing with the people who had made a living out of outward living. (laughs) And it's very revealing. As we look at Mark These Pharisees show up. They've been fairly quiet in Mark's recording. We haven't seen them since Mark chapter 3. And there Christ healed on the Sabbath and they accused him of being in league with Satan. And certainly they had people watching Jesus all the time. Verse 1 tells us that these scribes and Pharisees came from Jerusalem. And it is here that Mark records and takes a major turn in the book. Mark probably has been recording the preaching of Peter. We believe that. Mark wasn't here with his disciples at this time, so Peter had a great preaching ministry. Doubtlessly, Mark was an apprentice to him at some sort. He was recording this, and now this teaching takes a turn. And though he will record a few more miracles and a few more incredible deeds that the Lord Jesus does, he is now making his turn towards the cross. Mark 7 has him about roughly a year away from crucifixion. And Jesus knows that. But what's interesting, he is in the height of his ministry. His popularity and his poll numbers are off the chart. People are crying for him to be king. They are trying to take him by force. And yet the Lord knows the heart of all men. Doubtlessly, meetings are taking place. The religious leaders are seeing the loss of grip on the people that they've had for so long. And it has disturbed them. As they come against Jesus, and you you see this in this text. As they come against Jesus, they have no idea who they're dealing with. This is one who says in John chapter 2, verse 5? For he himself knew what was in the heart of man. He needs no one to tell him what is in the heart of man. He looks right to the heart, he looks right to the soul. And in this controversy that begins to happen here with these Jewish leaders, Jesus is going to ex- expose their perverted traditions and then deal with the real problem their heart. Their heart. This has been a problem for man ever since the fall. Ever since the fall, when Adam and Eve led us into the fall, and, and, and us in them, in a sense, we fell with them. Man has been struggling with heart issues. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 says, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man. Singular, speaking of in general, of all men. That, it, that every intent. Now listen to this, and In every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Isn't that amazing? That God can look at the intent of our thoughts. I mean, we are left to whatever we say, and certainly we can say hurtful things at times and we say, Well, that was that was mean. God looks at the intent of the heart. He looks long before whatever comes out of the mouth. He sees what's formulated in your being, your innermost being, and sees where that comes from. Shortly off the ark, he said it again, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Joshua pleading, with the people as they had entered the land and he was stepping down from his leadership and the elders of the of the nation would go on to lead said serve him with all your heart and with all your soul repeating the great commands of deuteronomy proverbs king solomon and all of his wisdom in chapter 4 verse 23 said this watch over your heart with all diligence for from it flows the springs of life What an illustration that is. Whatever you love, whatever you hold to, eventually from that heart, that's going to flow out. Maybe good, maybe evil. Whatever's in there will come out. Jeremiah, you know this verse 17, 9 and 10, says the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, listen to this, search the heart. I test the mind. Even to give each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. That verse scares me if it was not for the grace of God. Does anyone in this room want what God should deserve to give us or what we deserve? (laughs) That's what we love about salvation is he doesn't give us what we deserve by the grace of God. But he sees this. It's interesting, every major and minor prophet addressed the, is, the issue of Israel's heart. I looked at almost every one of the minor prophets and walked down through them and tried to find a theme of what the problem was. And each and every time, the writer comes to the heart of the people. I picked one book. I looked at Hosea. And you know Hosea. He was asked to uh, be a prophet to this very, very rebellious nation. He's told to marry a prostitute in an illustration of what the nation had done to their God. He was told to bear children with them and to give them all the promises that he had given. And in the end, she forsook him and returned to her sin. And Hosea addresses the unrepentance of Israel. Chapter 7, verse 14, he says this, And they do not cry to me from their heart. When they wail on their beds, for the sake of grain and new wine, they assemble. But they do not turn away from those things and turn to me, God says. Hosea chapter 10 reveals the faithlessness connected to their heart. God here says the heart, their heart is faithless. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down the altars and destroy their sacred pillars. He speaks about their physical contentment, hardened against God. Hosea chapter 13, verse 6. Listen to this. As they had their pastures, it means things were going well. Cattle and sheep were grazing, producing everything they needed. They became satisfied. And being satisfied, their heart became proud. And then it says this. Therefore, they forgot me. Ooh. Sound familiar? There are times you have forgotten God when you've had what you needed. These are truths that repeat in our lives at times. But for the nation of Israel, they're on display in the Old Testament for us. After Israel had returned to the land, there was a fight for God to have their heart. When you study the flow of Israel they realized that their worship of idols brought God's judgment upon them and particularly during the intertestamental time they they made a commitment that they would not serve idols again and it's interesting they didn't they, they didn't fall down before idols of wood and gold anymore they just fell down to idols of their heart And God saw that, and once again, Israel returned to judgment, first to the Greeks and now to the Romans as we look at this text here. And in the time of Jesus, their hearts were like stone. They had an outward glistening to them by their religious and self-righteous works, but inside they were dead. Jesus, the last week of his ministry, preaches Matthew chapter 23 to them. It is some woe passages. I just picked out a few. He says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees! First clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful. But inside are full of dead men's bones and are all unclean. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. What devastating words, and because their hearts were wicked, their hatred grew even more. And so it was not difficult for them to cry out with their loudest voice, Crucify Him! Get rid of Him! For he exposes our hearts. And that's why man rejects Jesus. Because you either let him have your heart, let him show and fix all the wickedness that may be in your heart, that is in your heart. Or you stand in self-reliance against him. The Lord was not the least bit interested in their godless behavior in this text. You'll see how he addresses this. And seven centuries after the Isaiah passage, we'll see in verse 6, Judaism of Jesus' day was characterized by that same empty and lifeless uh, worship. And this brings a fierce conflict. And Jesus, he, he had a way of approaching these things. We can't approach these things the way he does. He's sinless. We have to be careful. We have to be loving and kind. But he, he calls them broods of vipers. He calls them false shepherds. He repeatedly, over and over, uses the word hypocrites to expose their sin. When you go back and just think of the progression of the text, Mark chapter 6, he's commissioned to 12, he's feeding the masses, he's walking on the water, he, present, he represents... Um, the, the peak of his galley and ministry here, and as a result, the people are saying, "Make him king." And, and their motivation was, "Boy, this would be great. We don't have to work, we can get free food, we can get free health care, we can have everything we want. Let's make him king." No one. No one was looking for a savior. Isn't that the difference? Are you looking for a savior? Or you're looking for someone to meet your needs. All these events, when you think about this, rallied this religious group. They're going to come and discredit Jesus. And they're going to go as far as they can go. Even even take all their scriptural knowledge and all their traditions and all that they have and justify murder. That's what they're going to do. And yet this is all in the plan of God. To bring Jesus to the cross to save true worshipers. To save true worshipers. Those people who will worship from their heart and will be in desperate need of his grace. Let's briefly look down through this and look at a couple of thoughts here. Number one, the self-righteous heart focuses on external. The self-righteous heart focuses on the external. Verse one, the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem. As mentioned earlier, Jerusalem has sent this delegation of, of religious leaders, these scribes and Pharisees. Most likely they're responding to a, a help call. They, they, had, they had scribes and Pharisees scattered out in different places. There certainly was a Galilean contingency. And can you imagine the help call they sent out after Mark chapter 3? We need help. This man's doing things we've never seen And the people are going after him. That's disturbing if you love power. And so certainly this is what happened. Look with me at Mark chapter 3 real quick. Verse 4 and 4 through 6 just to remind ourselves what happened. Mark chapter 3 Verse 4, and he said to them, it is lawful to do good. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? See, he knows their hearts. He knows what they're thinking. They're going, he's going to heal this guy right on the Sabbath. He's going to break our rules. <laughs> and Jesus turns to him and says, is this good or bad? To save a life or to kill it? It's a, just simple answer here. <laughs> and yet their traditions and their self-righteousness had made this so difficult. And people were looking on going, wow, what is he going to do? They kept silent after looking around at them with anger. Notice that word. It's a word for wrath. Righteous indignation that God has against sinners. He looks at them with anger and grieved. Look at this, at their hard-heartedness. Right? The hardness of their heart. Why can't he? It's because he sees right into your heart. He knows when you've tightened or hardened that heart to the things of God. When you and I stick our heels in the ground and say, "God, it's my way," he knows that. As he looks into these wicked men's heart, he says to the man, "Stretch out your hand." (laughs) He stretched it out, and the hand was restored. The Pharisees, look at this, went out immediately, began conspiring with the Herodians against them. Let's go get this group that often kills Roman soldiers, and we'll get them to try to kill Jesus as to how they might destroy him. See, this is the thinking of it. And you think, well, Jesus, maybe you should be a little more politically correct and try to pass a few good laws that brings the parties together. <laughs> That's not how Jesus works. He does not compromise. He knows the will of the Father and he seeks that. And so clearly as we come to chapter 7, the, ha- the plan has been hatched. They have sent now delegates from Jerusalem. We are going to trap this guy and we are going to get him. And they were looking for the opportunity to accuse him and ultimately kill him. Verse 2, Then had seen some of his disciples This is going to be their motive here. They're looking for something. We're eating their bread with impure hands that is unwashed. Somewhere in this twisted thinking the Pharisees and scribes had taken the ceremonial washing commanded in Leviticus after touching something unclean and they had applied this purification to eating a meal. They worked this out. Notice the parenthetical statement here that Mark puts in here you'll see it in brackets verse 3 through 4 for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands thus observing the traditions of the elders and when they come from the marketplace they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves right? so, so there's this cleansing that takes place <laughs> I, I can't help but think maybe as these guys were uh, here uh, accusing Jesus and his disciples of things. There was probably some young man still with leftovers of fish and bread back there. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> he he had and washed his hands and he's there. And they're going, well, we see that your disciples don't wash their hands before they eat. Clearly they don't know the great traditions of the elders. that they had taken out of context... From the scriptures in order to present themselves self-righteous. Notice this term tradition or tradition of elders. Because this was this was more important to them than biblical instructions. They wrote a whole long thing out. You can go look this up, it's still around. They give a long description of how you're supposed to do this. Looks a little bit like the medical world would do, but it doesn't have that goal. And so they would first wash their hands, have water poured by someone else because they can't touch the pot because it could be unclean. So somebody else has to do it. I don't know what the last guy has to do, but anyway. Um, so you have to hold your fingers up and then have it washed. And then you have to hold your fingers down and have them washed. And then you have to rub each finger individually. This is in their ptoma, um To rub each one with the opposite wrist and then have them washed and purified again. Well, Soon this turned into a tire bath. They couldn't help but realize that they were walking among pagans. And so now we've walked among pagans. And now not only do we have to wash our hands, we have to wash our whole body. Do you remember when, when Peter responds to Jesus in John chapter 13? He says, well, not only my feet, then wash all of me. And, and I'm sure Peter was just wanting to be right with the Lord. But in the back of their mind, they had thought about those things. And so, man, here's Samaria. And I've got to get up here. Hmm, can't go through there. I'm going to walk all the way around. Can you imagine what they thought of Jesus? Here, Jesus is up in Samaria. Did you hear where he's at? He's up there with those pagans. So this mindset came. They had to do business with with Gentiles every once in a while. They wanted their money, but they didn't want anything from them else. And so they would have to come home, and now they've treaded among the pagans of the world, and so they would have to be washed. Even coming upon an unclean Jew, this would caused great distress in their lives because their godliness or their self-righteousness was linked to the outward behavior. Look at the end of verse 4. It says, there are many other things. I wish I had time to go through them all, but there's a new tradition for every day of the week, so I don't have that kind of time. Which they have received in order to observe, such as washing of cups, pitchers, and pots. I mean, I love grandma saying cleanliness is next to godliness. (laughs) Right? Did your grandma or somebody ever tell you? Cleanliness is next to godliness. Well, (laughs) cleanliness is good. I I hope you wash your hands before you shake mine when you've been sick. (laughs) But I don't think you're more godly in any way. And so now think with the pressure that's on these people from washing hands before they eat according to the traditions to now handling the cooking utensils. So, so becoming purified before you eat and purified after you eat was an exhausting trial because now everything you touch had to be cleaned. And if you're a gerbophobic, you probably like this. And you think it would get you to heaven. I remember one time we were branding a bunch of cattle and um, sometimes some city slickers would come up and I had this dear friend who was in the medical world and always wanted to come to a branding and our brandings are usually out in the middle of nowhere. Some old broken, richety corral somewhere and we're roping calves and castrating and giving shots and ear tagging and doing all the things we do do with them. And around uh, noon, here comes Gina. She pulls up in the pickup with coolers on the back and all of our food. And there isn't, there isn't water anywhere. <laughs> you know, and we kind of just pray and thank the Lord and we just dive in and I remember handing Ron a sandwich and I had been castrating um, <laughs> and he looked at me like <laughs> you know that huge agitation <laughs> Now certainly he wasn't trying to get to heaven through that but you can, you can just see the struggles that they had when your religious leaders are telling you if your hands aren't clean you won't see the kingdom of God If your dress isn't the right length, if your hair isn't the right length, if you don't say the right things or do the right things, you don't get the kingdom. Such difficulty, such hardship to live under. After the Babylonian captivity, these oral traditions began to be written down. They later became what we call the Mishnah. As time went on, more traditions were recorded. They were called the Gemara. And together they made up the Talmud. These are and still are considered the tradition of the elders. And the more they taught the traditions, the more God's word became blurred. And by Jesus' day, the traditions had been replaced, the traditions had replaced the scriptures and practice. And consequently, the traditions of the elders could be practiced outwardly in order to gain righteousness. At least that's what was taught. And there was no Concern with the heart of man until Jesus came along. That's so true in our lives, isn't it? Many of us were raised in the church, often in church a week or two after we were born. Our hearts become callous to the things of God because we say the right things and we do the right things and we, we know how to talk the talk. And yet it is Jesus Christ who broke your heart that day when he saved you. For many of us, we may not have walked in the gutter of the world. We may have not experienced the depths of sin. But Jesus showed us that we were capable of it. And whether we experience what man would call the big sins, we were just as wicked and deserved the fire of hell ourselves. And Christ came and he opened your heart. And he let you look in and say, oh God, I don't deserve you. You put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and he captured you. Well, the Pharisees were looking for somewhere and so verse 5, the Pharisees and scribes asked him, they said, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders but eat their bread with impure hands? So here these religious leaders, they're They take their traditions so serious, now they're confronting Jesus with this question. They're not gathering facts, it looks like a question in the text, but it's not. They're trying to corner him, they're trying to indict him, trying to discredit him to the people. During the silent years between the Testament, some of the rabbis would tell people and you got some of the stuff you have to read a lot to try kind to of understand why this was so important there was a set of rabbis who told the people during intertestamental times that while you sleep demons sit on your hands and if you don't wash them before you eat the demon gets in your mouth and into your body and this is where the stuff goes right there's just something more. You got, there's another level to it. And, and you're just exhausted trying to keep all these things in order to see God someday. And, and here they are. It, it doesn't that make a little more sense why they're accusing Jesus as in league with Satan and his demons? Your disciples, they don't even wash their hands. Probably have demons in them. <laughs> you can see why they do this. Oh, the eternal dangers of outward living while the heart is unrepented to sin and so desperate for the need of grace. Second thought, number two, Jesus exposes a self righteous heart. Here in verse six, he begins to say, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy, really, of you or about you, hypocrites. It's a pointed spot. He. He has not given them an answer to the question. He will answer that question with a different group and we'll see it next week when he talks to the crowds and disciples. But to them he does not give an answer. What he does is he gives these religious elite the pure scriptures. They are so far off the narrow path the Lord Jesus just says there's no explanation. There's no reason for you. All you get is God's truth. That's what he does. Because God's truth fillets the heart. And brothers and sisters, we need to learn to speak the truth in love. But we need to say, this is what the Bible says. This is what God's word says. That's how we refute things. You can get into worthless arguments. with people who are caught in false teaching or false beliefs. But to respond, we must respond with God's word. And Jesus is such a master at this. He knows the word of God. He is the word of God. And so he directly responds with the word of God. He is pointing out that works righteousness is deadly. And it must be addressed. And there's a constant flow of souls headed to hell because of the lies of men. And we must lovingly, lovingly but intentionally confront the lies That men believe in. I was having lunch with a dear brother this week in the church. And praying and hurting over a lost group of people that he so desires to reach. And we were talking about the illustrations of the Old Testament. How quickly there are idols set up in the heart of man to pull people away from truly coming to faith in Christ alone for salvation. Versus Christ plus this. Christ plus that. And we begged God. But when we searched the scriptures, we thought about verses like this. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Peter's speaking in the the, he's encircled with the killers of Christ. There's no other name. There's no other way. A double negative he uses in the Greek. It's an amazing passage. Whoa, that's narrow. That's a narrow gate. That's a narrow road. And Peter says, it's the only way. Titus chapter 3, verse 5 He saved us not based on deeds which we've done in righteousness. Oh, my goodness, is that true? That's not what the Pharisees and scribes and Jews of Jesus' day were believing. They were believing that they would be saved, they would enter the kingdom because of their deeds of righteousness. It's a lie from the pit of hell, but He saves according to His mercy. By the washing and regeneration, the renewing work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Himself said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. You'll never see my Father unless you come through me. I'm it. We have nothing else to offer people, brothers and sisters. We have nothing else. There is no plan B, there is no back door to heaven. It is through Christ alone, it is the rejection of our self-righteousness, of our good works, that man in any place, in any time, in any language, in any culture will ever see the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here, these scribes and Pharisees were hypocrites, he calls them in verse 6. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy to you. Notice that in verse 6, B, following through 7, he begins to quote Isaiah. He says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Let me show you that text. It's worth taking a minute and looking at and understanding its historical value to us. Turn to Isaiah chapter 29 with me. Let me give you just some background as we just read this first few verses. Isaiah, the prophet of God, has been sent to a nation that is walking in rebellion. The northern tribe has gone to captivity. The Syrians have come in. They have taken away the northern tribe. They are now captive east of Jerusalem. Soon Babylonians are coming. But at this time, as Isaiah writes to the nation, things are really good, prospering. The economy's booming. Everybody has what they want. And here comes Isaiah speaking of coming judgment. It really doesn't go over well. And he begins to speak about particularly the city of David. Verse 1, he says, O oh, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David once camped. This is... A a term probably acquainted with the Israel, with Jerusalem area. It can be translated the Lion of God. This is a city known for its strength. He's talking about this is where the altars of God were, where man came before him at one time. He goes on to say, add year to year, observe your feast on schedule. I will bring distress to Ariel, and she will be a city of lamenting and mourning, and she will be like an Ariel to me. I will camp against you, encircling you, and I will set a siege work against you, and I will raise up battle towers against you. Boy, you can see this, can't you? But things are not like that right now. Everything's great. And you could see Babylon with their... Towers and they're beginning to to build ramps to come up over the wall that he's speaking of. Then you will bow low from the earth you will speak and from the dust you will prostrate. Your words will, will come. Your voice will be like that of a spirit from the ground and your speech will whisper from the dust. But multitudes of your enemy will, be, will become like fine dust, and multitude of the ruthless ones like the chaff which blows away, and it will happen instantly, suddenly. And the Lord of hosts, you will be punished with thunder and earthquakes and loud noises with whirlwinds and tempests. Tempest and and the flame of the consuming fire, and the multitudes of all the nations who rage wars against Ariel, even all the who rage war against her and her stronghold and her distress will be like a dream of a vision of night. It will be like when a hungry man dreams, and behold, he is eaten, but when he awakens, his hunger is not satisfied. Or when a thirsty man dreams, behold, he is drinking, and when he awakens, behold, he is faint. His thirst will not quench, thus the multitudes of all the nations will be who rage war against Mount Zion. Be delayed and wait. Bind yourself and be blind. Blind yourself and be blind. They will become drunk and not with wine, they'll stagger, but not with strong drink. The Lord has poured over you a spirit of deep sleep. He has shut your eyes, the prophets, and He has covered your head, the seers. These are false prophets and false seers. The, in, the entire vision will be to you like the words of a sealed book, which when, you, when they give it to you who is literate, saying, please read this, and he will say, I cannot, for it is sealed. And then the book will be given to the one who is illiterate, saying, please read this, and he'll say, I cannot. And then the Lord will say, now here he goes. This is the final straw. They've rejected him in all of his grace and mercy he's given because this people draws near with their words and honor me with their lip, but their hearts are far from me, and their reverence for me consists of traditions learned by rote. Now what a statement. You have to understand the scene. In the morning they would go to temple. They would sacrifice and do all the things that the law said in most cases. In the afternoon they would go sacrifice their babies to Baal. It was heartless, godless, pagan worship with God's principles mixed in. And God brought judgment onto them. And here, this is the text that they would have known so well. This is the text that they, in the intertestinal period, said, We can't do this anymore. We can't worship idols. We've got to be righteous. We've got to obey the law. They knew this text. And yet now. God's word records Isaiah to strike at their heart to say you've returned right back. Look at verse 8 with me. Neglecting the commandments of God, you hold to traditions of men. The word neglecting means you, you let go. You had a firm grip on it. You understood God was clear. He told you what he required. He told you of that, but you've let go of the things you need it the commandments the divine decrees of God and notice what he says here you hold to this is a very strong verb here you firmly grasp you are gripped in the traditions of men and they're dying they're dying and Jesus later in John 8 says because of this they will die in their sins repetition Tongues, spiritual jargon, spiritual pat answers, worship without repentance, legalism that is setting regulations on others, do what I say but not what I do. Spiritual police, all of this creates creates what we see here. And it's in the church. It's in the church. One of the things that struck us coming from the West three and a half years ago is well Nobody goes to church out there. (laughs) The West is very pagan. There's not much in the way of even outward spiritualness. Sunday is a day to play. Sunday is why would you give up a day to go to some building? It's it's just growing worse and worse there as time goes on. What struck us was how many people here go to church. (laughs) How many people offer, again, the sacrifice of their lips to God, but yet their hearts are far from them? It's true. And, And I honestly believe, I've traveled the world, I think, and believe totally the Scriptures. God has His elect everywhere. And I don't think there's really a greater deposit of one in one place than another. But culturally, we learn to think like men, and we worship like men at times. Instead of worshiping like God. Third, Jesus exposes the experts of hypocrisy. Look at verse 9 with me. He was also saying to them, you experts, you are experts at setting aside the commandments of God in order to keep your traditions. Well, by definition, the word expert is defined this way. It's a person who has a comprehensive and authoritative knowledge of or skilled in a particular area. So think about that definition. You are, uh, have a comprehensive and you have an authoritative knowledge in the particular area of denying God's word and holding to what you think. <laughs> wow. No wonder they want to kill him. He just goes right after their heart here. And Jesus is saying, you're, you're not just self-righteous, but you're an expert of saying this belongs to God, but rejecting that and holding on to something else. It's a neglecting of the word, neglecting of what God says. And, and brothers and sisters, as I thought through this this week, I thought, Lord, we, it's so easy for us to get there. And it's easy to look at this and say, oh, these Jews, oh, these Pharisees and scribes. But how many commands do we have speaking from a New Testament Perspective. Man, uh, husbands, love your wife as Christ loves the church. Hmm. Not a suggestion. Wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord an act of worship. Not a suggestion. Children, obey your parents for this is right. Not a suggestion. Put away all unwholesome speech from your mouth. Not a suggestion. See, these are commands that God gives us. And I wonder, I wonder if sometimes we become experts of putting away what God see, says. And you say, well, how do you do that, Pastor? Well, I think sometimes we tell our children, don't do what I do, do what I say. You become an expert. You dismiss things by justifying what you've done, and you, it's easy to get there. Well, um, I'm angry because, and, and this person, and you, you push that off to somebody else, you become an expert. God says, be angry and don't sin. Anger is a sin in most every case. So we, we get ourselves there at times, and then the Bible has this great verse that is a, a verse that is our life's uh, prayer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your might, your soul, and your strength. And love your neighbors like you love yourself. It's his lifetime of that. Jesus knows that this is not their heart. So what does he do? He takes a command that they would know, a very simple command. And begins to repeat it to them. Verse 10, Moses said, Honor your father and mother. And he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. So here Jesus says, oh, Let me go to the law of Moses. I know you, you, you're more up to date on your traditions. But I know you know the Mosaic law. You, you, you preach this. This is the way you get to the kingdom of God. And so let me take something very well known to you. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. This is the fifth commandment. Honoring means to love and to respect and seek the best for that one. It's a pretty straightforward command. But notice in verse 10 how he says, this is how you all handle it. But he says, but you say, if a man says to his father and his mother, what I have that would help you is (laughs) Corban. Meaning, given to God. I know you are in need, mom, dad. But all that I have belongs to God. And all my earthly possessions are reserved for sacred purposes. So I hope you make it. (laughs) You see, Jesus pulls this out. This is exactly what they were doing. (laughs) There is common knowledge, recorded knowledge, that if if your son was a Pharisee or a scribe, you often died in poverty. Because they would refuse to share what they had. Sounds so spiritual, doesn't it? All that I have is for God, Corbin. It's all for you, God. Can't give it to anybody else. It's all for you. And I'll take care of it till you come back. See, it sounds good, but they found a loophole, right? (laughs) They found a loophole. Look, I can just say, well, I don't have to take care of my parents. I don't have to fulfill the fifth command because all that I have is for God. Look at verse 12. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father, and his mother. See what you're doing? He see what he's saying? You are using your traditions in order to rewrite the scriptures in order for that person who hears you teach that not to please and honor God. Man, they must have been fuming. See, this was promoting outward appearance. Oh, everything that I have is for God when inward greed and self righteousness hold sway. And then verse thirteen, thus invalidating. Look at the strong verbs being used here. Thus invalidating the word of God by your traditions which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. Brothers and sisters, I couldn't help but read this and say, "Oh God, where I've invalidated the word of God to my my boys? Where do my life doesn't reflect my mouth?" It really hurts our testimony at times, right? At work, at play in neighborhood. We, we say one thing, and, and maybe on Sunday we act something way, but on Monday, oh, it's a whole different school. Sunday school was great, but Monday school is a whole different world. So God doesn't want us to live that way. He doesn't want legalism to be handed down. He wants the chain broke. He wants us to love him and step away from self-righteousness. And so, just in closing, I wrote one more point here. I said, Lord, teach me to love you. Point four. Well, how do you get there? Well, I, I think David had an answer to it. I think change starts with Repentance. Psalms 51, David said, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. He appeals to God in his grace. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgression. In this text, he uses almost every Hebrew word there is for sin, iniquity, transgression. He uses it all. And you go, well, David committed adultery. You know, that's a really big one, Scott. I think you can pray this prayer for an evil thought that went through your mind while you were sitting here. <laughs> oh, Lord, wash me thoroughly. Take away my sin, Lord. I believe that Jesus died for me. Scrub it out of me, verse 7. Purify me with hyssop. Cleanse me, Lord. Wash me. Make me whiter than snow. Oh, brothers and sisters repentance is such a sweet thing for a believer you are not repenting in order to gain salvation again as though you lost it you want to walk with him better you want to deal with things that in your life that shouldn't be there that's repentance for a believer you go well what else can I do God how can how can I teach how can I learn to love him well think of his greatness. Romans eleven thirty three and following, oh, the depth of the wisdom, the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are your judgments. Have you just thought about how unsearchable God is sometimes? Have you ever gone out there and just look at the waves? They just keep coming. That moon keeps hanging there, and it keeps moving, and it controls our tides. And, and God, you hold all things together by the word, by the word of your mouth. You want to get back to God? Think of his greatness. Pray his greatness. Pray his greatness back to him. God, you are great. You are mighty. I need you. I need thee every hour, as we often sing. Ask where your love and your focus is. Maybe we... Think more like Paul wrote to the Colossian church. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. You have to confess this and say, Lord, man, I get so earthly at times. Do you? Am I the only guy? Somebody nod for me here. Do you think earthly at times? And it's hard for us. We're we're but dust. We're we're a fallen creation that that is waiting for our final restoration. And so we deal with difficulties. Our bodies fall apart. We deal with sin in the world, sin in our family, sin in our own heart. It is difficult. But don't compound it by being consumed with this world. uh, Boy, I mean, I... My politics are probably known. I don't use the pulpit much for that, but you can just get lost in what's going on out there, can't you? The world's going to hell in a handbasket, according to most of the major news networks. Our God is in control. And I need to set my mind on the One who has all things in control. That rescues me from heartache and temptation. We have a new life. For the love of God compels us to live. So that we might no longer live for ourselves. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says that we might live for the one who died for us. Because we're new creatures. Lord, help me live as a new creature. Treasuring things. The great psalmist, probably David, wrote Psalms 119.11. Your word I have stored or treasured in my heart. Man, you go, Scott, I want want this. I want that kind of joy. I don't want my heart to go towards legalism. Treasure. Treasure the word. Treasure what he has. Stimulate yourself. Hebrews 10 is very clear that we come to church to stimulate one another. What do you come for? Gaining God in some way? God will be happy with you and bless your business. The Bible says come to church, don't forsake it because we come to stimulate each other to love the Lord in in word and deed. Put yourself under the word of God. Pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5. You go, well, Scott, how do you do that? That just means that you have a relationship with God that you are just one phrase away from talking to him. That's what it means. You're driving down the road and, oh Lord, I, I, I forgot to tell you this. Or, or, Lord, will you help me with this? You're one moment, of one phrase away and say, oh, Lord, help me. Don't quench the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, Apostle Paul says. Let me close with this. I, I often ask people this question all the time who come meet with me and I don't know if they're saved or not. Sometimes we'll ask why, someone will say, hey, I want to be baptized. And I'll ask a question like this. Well, hypothetically, if you stand before God, if you're to die and you ask God, well, why would he let you in? It's a good question. I think if you're saved, that question's not going to happen. But, but, it, but hypothetically, if I died and I stand before the Lord, and Father in heaven, and he says, hey, uh, yeah, here's the gates, but why should I let you in? I thought about that a lot. Last night, right before I went to bed, I wrote this down to answer that question, and maybe it might help you. Dear Heavenly Father, in and of myself, I have nothing to offer you. Left to myself, I deserve all your wrath. That's good. My notes are out of order. (laughs) Sorry about this. I really enjoyed this prayer, too. (laughs) I don't know what I did with it, (laughs) it's not here. Let me see if I can paraphrase it. Dear Heavenly Father, in and of myself, I have nothing to offer you. Left to myself, I deserve all of your wrath. I simply, by faith in you alone, cling to the finished work of your Son that he accomplished on the cross on my behalf. You, Father, drew me to yourself through your Son by your Spirit. It was your Son who satisfied your righteous wrath. It was you, Father, that adopted me into your family and made me joint heirs with your Son, Jesus. It was you, Father, that placed your Spirit in me at the time you saved me. And, Father, you sealed me for eternity. It was you, Father, who continually during my life on earth conformed me more and more into the image of your Son. I am here, Father, because of your your sovereign will, not mine. I am here, Father, because your Son purchased me with his own blood. I am here, Father, because you filled me and marked me with your Spirit. I am here, Father, because you chose me before the foundations of time, and your Son died for me. I am here, Father, because you raised your Son from the dead. He beat sin, Satan, and death in order to set me free. I'm here, Father, because of you. I'm here, Father, because of your glory. Lord, Father, we thank you that we do not have to rest upon our own righteousness. It's disturbing to read a passage like Matthew chapter 7, Lord. That these people in this text were convinced that their outward living would gain them eternal life. And Lord, we confess that there are times that we can get drawn into that fray. But, Lord, as we have just read, we confess, Lord, that this is your doing. And so we surrender ourselves to you again. Lord, that you would have first place in our heart. Capture our heart again, Lord, in order that you may be the rightful one that sits on our throne of our heart. We thank you that you do not ask us to come with all of our deeds and all of our righteousness in order to gain your love and gain your eternal residency. We gain that by your mercy and your grace. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. Remind us, Lord, to walk by faith, not by sight. That you would once again cause us to live from our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.